The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to Very Loose Women. Welcome to Very Loose Women on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, my name's Catherine. I'm Emma. I'm Leonor. I'm Landon. Hey, Landon. Hello. Welcome to Very Loose Women. It's your first time on our show. Lovely women. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and so Landon is our special guest for this evening. You have come on our show to tell us all about work that you're doing um, as part of your PhD. Can you give a bit of an overview to our listeners? Uh, yes, so I've spent about a year in, in prison, willingly. No, I spent pretty much every day for about a year uh, following a group of inmates in prison back to the streets and writing about their lived experience. And whereabouts was that? Uh, I was in the US, in uh, New England. You study medical anthropology, yep. and I never heard of that. So what, how, like, how does that work? So you're basically studying um, systems and cultures and people and phenomenon, and you're kind of doing that through ethnographic methods, uh, which are participant observation and semi-structured interviews. Um, and you're really just trying to get at the way people live their lives. And you're doing that with a medical focus. So my focus has been mostly around HIV. Uh, and that's kind of what I've done for my doctoral research in following HIV positive inmates. You hang out with people. You're kind of like a professional stalker in a way. <laughs> that sounds fun. So were you surprised by your prison experience? Um, did you find anything particularly like illuminating or shocking? For, you know, U.S. prisons is, you know, this is, these are, this is mass incarceration. So this is a very kind of different, you know, it's a very different experience. Uh, and it's a very shocking thing to kind of walk into. So the sight of, you know, the gates roll back and they hiss and clank. And you enter into a field of thousands of men all identically dressed or women. Um, and, you know, they're kind of going about their daily routine. So it's this whole like hidden world. Um, but I think, you know, it's, yeah, I, I don't know if uh, to, to kind of answer that of, of what's, you know, shocking about that is that it's also, you know, this is a, this is a lot of people. So it's about 2.3 million people at any given moment behind bars. Um, so if you can imagine that, that's like a, you know, a pretty sizable city uh, that are locked up in different facilities all across the nation. What does it actually feel like when you've walked into those types of places for the first time? Did you feel intimidated? Did you feel depressed by it? Uh, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if intimidating is quite the right word. Um, it was probably a bit bold. I think I actually, you know, opened my thesis with a little bit of a narrative about this. Um, you know, I kind of showed up in a you know white pressed shirt and you know ready to go with my little notebook. And you know, then all of a sudden <laughs> you're just like, oh shit, I'm. I'm in front of, you know, a massive crowd of people. Um, but these are, you know, from the, you know, kind of onset. 
that before you kind of really get involved in the system. And so I can kind of talk a little bit later about how I've you know really become integrated into a prison culture system as an anthropologist. But you walk out there and you know you're you're just you feel very small because you're surrounded by tons of people and they're very sterile environments. Uh, so everything is you know the inside of the buildings are all kind of whitewashed and linoleum floors and you know recessed lighting and you know you kind of walk through these spaces and you're at call points at checkpoints at the security substations and you're calling out codes at the doors and they you know kind of buzz and open and everything is very controlled and orderly. And what was the response that you got, especially maybe turning up in a crisp white shirt? Yeah, I mean, I started wearing T-shirts after that. A little bit of tie, maybe, yeah. Yeah, it's a very much... I mean, you have to kind of win people over a bit, right? Uh, As an anthropologist, you're rapport building. So... I can remember some of the first days being kind of locked in between doors, um, you know, just to kind of test me a little bit. Or I went to talk to nursing staff, for example, and they had all gotten a gag order from their superior to not speak to me. And so I kind of you you kind of have to slowly over time, you know, win people over, and you do that by kind of I think just being yourself um, and you know reaching people on their level and engaging the things that interest them. And you know, one of the kind of tricks that I used a little bit, you know, I started using lockdown schedules. So lockdown schedules are where you know they might cordon off a building or a space and no one can move. And so you can kind of just sit there and say, well, okay, well, we're all stuck now for like an hour or so in this space. I guess we're going to have to talk to each other. And then over time, you start doing things and engaging with them. Uh, one of the things I did was exercise with inmates or sit on steering committees um, or just hang around the you know medical dispensaries or you know individual cells or whatever. And you start building relationships. And before you know it, you know you are kind of in with that group and you know talking with people and engaging with them. Did you find a different reaction between being in men's and women's prisons at all? Like, were women easier to I really like the women. (laughs) (laughs) Say that on a show with very loose women. I I really like the women quite a bit. I mean, it was just a bit more of a relaxed facility. um, uh, And... You know, I think that it all depends on the different staff at the facilities as well. So the, you know, wardens were quite welcoming in the women's prisons that I worked in. So that made a big difference, I think, in allowing me the kind of, you know, freedom to really move around the institutions. And the women's are much smaller, so it's a little bit easier to kind of have a presence where, you know, men's, it's just, you know, depending on the facility that you might be in, it could be a couple thousand people. Um, how long have you like tracked the people that you were working with then, the kind of inmates that you spoke to? So uh, for about a year, um, I, you know, a little bit longer. It's really hard to kind of exit a field once you've you've gone in. Um, I think any anthropologist would kind of struggle with that a little bit. And especially, you know, this day and age with technology, you can kind of easily get roped back in uh, through just an email or a phone call or something. Um, so for about a year and, you know, you kind of follow people everywhere. And I initially had kind of designed research to follow people from, you know, inside the prison back to the streets in a very kind of linear way but that's not how the criminal justice system really works um, and I think we you know, mentioned this a bit earlier so there's really you know high recidivism rates uh, so people are kind of constantly cycling in so you know over a, you know in any given year you're probably going to have about 12 million people cycle through the prison that's about 9 million individual cases and these are high recidivism rates you know around 59 60% depending on if it's jail or prison and um, I can kind of talk about the differences between those two institutions in a second but basically you know, I was following people from prison back to the streets, from you know individuals I had recruited on the streets that have been living in the community for you know over a year back into prison. Sometimes catching people in between prison bids, sometimes getting people while they're back in prison for a little bit and they had been out before and back in. So it was you know kind of coming from all directions um, to really kind of get at that 
that whole um, you know, journey uh, in and out of prison and kind of constant recidivism. So what I mentioned before is the difference between prisons and jails is um, you know, prisons are for sentenced individuals for a year or longer and jails are for usually 12 months or less. It depends. I mean, you can have a shorter sentence where you'd be housed in a jail or it depends on how the facilities are set up. There's some kind of combined jail prison systems. There are some, you know, that, you know, for women's, for example, that will serve as a maximum security, you know, prison as well as a jail. There, there are those kind of subtle differences in the American system. And there's also differences between federal prisons, state-level prisons, and jails. But they're all in private institutions as well. Uh, so when, when you were following people, what, what exactly were you looking out for? Uh, anything and everything. So I take a very grounded theoretical approach, which is a very simple question, but a very complex question, is you just constantly ask, what is going on here? And so, you know, initially set out to look at kind of concepts of medicalization, so how people relate to HIV and construct identities and engage with, you know, both their medical care and, and that becomes kind of a part of their lives, to looking at really how violence um, and, you know, public health and medical systems and incarceration are all kind of intertwined together. So what kind of health care is available in prisons? Prison is the only place in the U.S. where we have a constitutional right to health care. Um, and that was actually held up in a juridical proceeding in 1976 by Gamble, Estelle versus Gamble. And basically, it's very specific wording is that it's deliberate indifference to a very serious medical need. So, you know, very serious medical need has probably been defined in a bunch of literature around care, which is you know, something that would lead to death or something that would lead to serious injury. But deliberate indifference can actually allow for a huge amount of scope of the fact that a staff member or a uh, nurse could basically be negligent um, and unknowingly do harm. So you have to kind of knowingly do harm in prison. So it's a little bit different than in the community where if you accidentally don't do something or run a specific test or don't think there's enough evidence to test for something, that would just be, you know, you probably lose your license for that. Where in the prison, it's a very different kind of scenario. So what does that mean for the health of inmates? You know, they are receiving health, and a lot of times it's or health health care. There are, a lot of times it's actually much better than the health care they might be receiving on the street. I must give a little caveat that, you know, most of my research was done before the implementation of the kind of Affordable Care Act, so Obamacare. You know, you, you do have basic health care, but it's really kind of up for, up at the discretion of either a nurse or a doctor. And so a lot of times, you know, we'll see with very ill inmates, and, you know, the kind of case that I make is this is a biologically damaged population. So you look at, you know, HIV. HIV, mental illness, so HIV is, you know, five times higher in the prison setting. You know, mental, you know, mental health is, you know, roughly around, you know, probably around, you know, 60, 70 percent of the population that would have, you know, some sort of diagnosable mental, um, you know, issue. You know, they're coming to prison to kind of restock some of that, those resources, whether it's getting a diagnosis and the paperwork they need for back, going back to the community or whether it's the care itself. Uh, in the prison. So, you know, you can get it. But then once you're in the prison, there's a whole negotiation process for how to go about getting that. So one of the things that's kind of important to know is it's really hard to get uh, or to even make a legal claim around something uh, that is not physically based. So a lot of times people will inflict physical harms themselves to be able to make a case so that they can you know, get a diagnosis or get the care that they need because it's recognized legally at that point. So once they've got health care, as you're saying, it might be better than what they would have like on the street. How does that 
care extended once they've left jail or prison? In theory, um, you would be put on a kind of Affordable Care Act and then continue in the community. Um, and I looked at very specific groups. I look at HIV-positive individuals. A lot of what was happening up until very recently, I think it's actually still on the books as far as something that can be done, which is the Medicare would be offering incentives to the prison to disenroll individuals once they go into the prison setting. If you even manage to get health care in the prison, or sorry, before you were in prison and you were you know, getting the treatment you needed for your, your HIV or your mental health issues or whatever it might be, your hypertension, um, you then have that taken away and you'd go through this very long process of trying to get it back once you get out. So you're left in this position uh, where you're back on the streets and maybe if you're lucky you get your medication you know, prescription you know, filled for a certain number of days after you're, you're out you know, back in the community. But a lot of times you're just left with you know, no health care. So that's a, it's a huge problem. So on to the very important issue of Orange is the New Black. <laughs> so um, just what you're saying, this is like Orange is the New Black is the only kind of landmark they have in yeah. terms of U.S. prison systems, apart from yep. maybe like a Louis Theroux documentary. Yep. The transgender character is able yep. to get medication, but it's switched from like good medication to generic. I don't know if generic is not good, but they, they yep. switch the medication. It causes it. That's like a whole plot line. And it causes a big problem. Yeah. Um, but then like if you some... You really know this quite well. <laughs> I know. I watched it. A lot of episodes, um, but but then like other other illnesses, like you're saying, so like uh, withdrawal from from drugs for new inmates, yeah. uh, they're not getting any treatment. So there's a kind of like picking and choosing of which which ones are important and which ones aren't. It's a, you know it's a huge discretion of the prison and the prison budget, um, and I think it's grow, growing by about twelve percent uh, annually. The you know expenditure on healthcare in prisons. So they're always kind of looking to cut that. So that's been one of the biggest things. That you cut these you know prison budget because roughly we spend about 75 billion a year going toward corrections and so there's you know that's one of the things that might get the axis trying to get things down to you know basic sort of you know run of the mill uh, medication or you know to detox somebody very quickly rather than maybe keep them on methadone maintenance you know that's part of that is cost saving apparently there's some law in the states where People can't touch each other. If you yeah, I mean, I can remember, like you know, it's and that's it's a very hard thing as, you know, you know, I'm, I'm prying into people's lives as an anthropologist and you're asking some very specific questions. And I can remember, you know, going through interviews with people that are talking very explicitly about their suicide attempts, for example, and that's bringing them to tears. And, you you know, you can't really comfort them with a hug like you'd, you might want to. You know, you, your kind of biggest show of affection might be, uh, hey, would you mind cuffing him, you know, in, in front instead of in back? And so, you know, there's physical physical kind of affection and various things take on then different meaning in the prison setting. But, you know, some touching does happen. You know, there's some physical contact. And I think especially in the classes where you allow that, like I used to uh, exercise twice weekly with uh, the female inmates and have a really kind of good time. And, you know, that's there's space for that. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really restrictive environment. So if you think about that and the ideas of reform, what are you reforming if, you know, you're not allowing somebody to have, you know, basic kind of physical contact and emotions? I mean, I very much get that the biggest concern is, you know, custody and control within these settings. These are huge amounts of people like you kind of have to set these boundaries. If you're you know, spending years without any sort of physical contact or engagement with people in a very normal sort of way, um, yeah, that's not really preparing you for society, is it? So I guess kind of on that point, what do you see as like the American just uh, government maybe justification for prisons or like explanation for it? And what is your own view on the use of them? Well, uh, a very, very brilliant uh, scholar, Angela Davis, once said that this is a space to disappear the problems of our time. You know, the, the issues that the prison and kind of unfairly in some ways... Um, 
to the you know prison institution itself are having to grapple with are you know huge you know medical care social issues they're they're having to deal with poverty right uh, they're having to deal with you know the social systems that probably should be in place in the community as kind of a one-stop shop for social welfare I think if you trace back the evolution of prisons in the states going back especially to like the 80s and the 90s so going back to you know Nixon's declaration on the war on drugs in 1971 kind of taking it from there it was an industry a huge industry with trade shows and conventions um billions of dollars as i mentioned before it's 75 billion dollars a year and that's been you know if you go back i think in 1980 it was roughly around like 15 billion that's you know it's a huge growth um and huge growth growth in the prison population i believe in 1980 also the prison population was probably around 500,000 you know that's now uh you know 2.3 million tapering off a bit but it's you know still a growing population so it's it's an industry in some ways i think that it depends on the kind of lens you want to view it it you know it takes out people that you know really some of them shouldn't be in society, but a lot of the people are just, you know, they they have social issues um, that they're trying to deal with. And do you think that prison prevents violence? No. So I write a lot about two things. One is this kind of theorization of a different type of violence in prisons. So I write very specifically about degradation, which um, is kind of a word that I adopted for my, my participants. But it's, you know, the acts in which you have to go through, as we talked about before, to get the kind of medical care. So, you know, example might be, uh, to kind of put this in context, is, you know, an inmate comes in, he's been doing fine for a little while, and then he decides to swallow a case of razor blades. Um, so that's a pretty degrading, disgusting sort of act. You might kind of look at that if you're to kind of go back in you know, our academic literature and say, okay, well, that might be a Mary Douglas kind of idea of disgust or a Christiva idea of objection. So that might be something that kind of, you know, really is disgusting and out of place and needs correcting, right? But they might do that. They might engage in that and they might be kind of encouraged to engage in that in a system like that to remove themselves maybe from the medical care that's being, you know, that they're objecting to. Because there's no other kind of grievance procedure, a formal grievance procedure to say, I'm not getting the things I need in this setting. But they might also do that to start generating paperwork, very important paperwork that they can use when they get back to the community. So by paperwork, I mean a medical diagnosis that they can use for getting SSI or SSDI. And SSI and SSDR basically are welfare for housing and medication in, in the U.S. You have to kind of look at why somebody might be doing that and then realize that that is, you know, violence maybe in an extreme form, but for maybe the people living in that and their kind of habitus of the prison, that's an everyday violence. Uh, there's not, it's, it might not be that abnormal to engage in these kind of really self-destructive or seemingly self-destructive behaviors, but it also might not be that different in the community. So I think that to kind of answer your question is I don't think it's uh, an institution that's about reforming violence, but it's about an institution maybe about to kind of learn how to use violence in different ways. I just remember at school, uh, we studied this text by Levi Strauss, who mm-hmm. had gone to South America and yep. seen that people who had done something bad in their society were then, uh, the rest of the society gave them gifts and tried to include them yep. as much as possible. Is there anything in that for, for the USA today, I guess? What, so what are the benefits that people are getting from the prison system? Um, and it's not to say that you, know, you incentivize the prison system, but what are the benefits are they getting? And then what process do they have to go to get them? And what are the alternatives? So what is the alternative to if you don't have anywhere to go in society for housing, um, you know, very limited Section 8 housing, you have very limited access to medical care, you might be in a, in a you know, gang and you have that's your social structure, or you, know, you might just not have a very good social structure in the, in the community. You know, where do you go about to get that? 
that? And how does the you know prison system and maybe if you were to go back generations and look at how your parents did it or you know siblings or family members, you know how do how is the prison system used um, in a very different way? Um, so you go to the prison and you might get some of those things you need, but you're also restocking reentry resources, right? So there's a growing you know it's kind of been dubbed a little bit as a you know reentry industry. Um, there's a growing industry around you know this reform, right? And these different resources say, well, okay, if we provide six months of you know intensive case management when they get out in the community, this is going to be this is going to solve the problem. Uh, we'll provide transport, we'll provide food stamps, we'll provide these things, um, but that lasts for six months. So what are you going to do when that six months is up? Uh, but say, oh, okay, well, I'm you know my six months is up. I'm going to commit a petty crime, go back to prison, and then I'm eligible for these things all over again. Um, so it's about using these structures in a very kind of logical way. But that in and of itself, to answer your question about violence, like that's the production of violence. Um, when you look at the prison system as one way of making it. And is there a difference in, from your research at least, the way that male and female prisoners kind of negotiate this sort of world and the type of violence that maybe they're experiencing or metting out on themselves? That, that is also a great question. And Why, thank you. <laughs> there absolutely is a difference. I do kind of, in my own research, really group uh, men and women together, um, partly because you know, it's about a phenomenon and about, you know, very strategic use and production of violence. Um, so I don't really look at specifically gender differences. Um, but, you know, the women, I think, and this, you know, this in some literature has been argued a little bit differently, like they, you know, are a bit more, you know, verbal in their arguments and a bit more collective. So one of the things you would, you know, one of the examples an inmate gave to me, for example, was, uh, you know, there was, uh, there weren't, proper shading on the windows and it was getting really hot and sunny and you know they might want to nap during the day or something um so they would collectively get together and you know petition the warden or petition the deputy warden or whoever to say well this is something that we need uh whether it's dealt with or not that's a very you know separate thing but you know the men kind of are a bit more independent sticking to themselves but i think with women it's you know especially after release it's a really it's really you know difficult i spent a lot of time with you know a couple of female inmates in particular as they kind of got out and lived in the community and you know, they're faced with much more violence uh, and much more domestic violence, much more PTSD. Um, you know, a lot of times they have, you know, the kind of added burden, too, of uh, one in 25 women pregnant when they come in. So these are you know, women that are, you know, have, you know, having children or, you know, have children when they get out. And, you know, once they go through that prison system, their kids are caught up in either, you know, living with grandparents or a family member or, you know, caught into, you know, uh, child, you know, protective services or, um, you know, foster care. And so it's a whole additional kind of challenge to then try and reassemble their family. And that's usually, I think, placed more on women than it is on the the man. When you give birth in prison, yeah, are you so you're taken to hospital and you are hang, are you handcuffed? No, you're that, right that's the right in the of, hospital bed. No. Yeah, <laughs> that's like the thing that you have like in films and stuff. I don't know, like what's, so what's that actually I like? I don't, you know, I don't know how common the practice is still. I think they're. I definitely know there are still, you know, institutions do it, and it's a it's a big kind of controversial thing, uh, which is shackling while somebody is uh, giving birth, which really honestly makes no sense to me. I don't think somebody's like likely to run in the midst of childbirth. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, you could be uh, pretending to give birth. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> with that fake baby, with your a, fake womb. <laughs> well, I mean, you can. You do quite well in prison with with this uh, creativity. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's been said before. <laughs> There's kind of a number of you know gender specific things on top of that and, you know for example even meal sizes um you know obesity is a big issue especially among female prisoners um 
And it's a lot of it is to do with, you know, locked on schedules and stuff and lack of physical activity, but also just, you know, they're eating male portion meal sizes uh, that have been like developed to give, you know, these very high starchy foods for a male diet. And, you know, there's a huge lack of research in female prisons, you know, because it makes up 9.3% of the prison population. Uh, most people will only study you know, male inmates. Kind of what is the main difference in the kind of prison demographics between between male and female prisoners and like are they normally in prison incarcerated for like different types of crime? If you look at crimes across the whole, um, especially going back to what I said earlier about this, you know, really kind of heyday of, you know, mass incarceration in America of the 80s and 90s is it, you know, went from something where you would only incarcerate or be more apt to incarcerate the, you know, very violent crimes, uh, you know, the, the murderers and the sex offenders and those would be your crimes. But a lot of these crimes are either crimes of necessity or they are, you know, for, you know, mental health. Uh, it's, you know, a lot of times the prison is the largest mental health hospital in the state, essentially, by default. Or or it's, uh, you know, uh, drug-related crimes. So when you were talking about kind of the six-month kind of benefits almost that you get, like, post-being in prison in America, like food stamps, things like that, yeah. yeah. Does that exist in any way in the UK? So, you know, keeping in mind that the UK has, you know, roughly 85 to 86,000 inmates, so it's you know, small, much smaller than the U.S. population. But, you know, you have, uh, there's, there's an NHS here. Yeah. Uh, you know, there there are, you know, kind of different services. And there's, you know, us, there's, there's you know, housing for people that can qualify for it uh, that aren't going to be barred from it because they are a felon or because they've committed certain crimes. So, you know, I don't, I don't know specifically. I think probably some of the same things exist. Uh, you know, prisons are very structured environments. And if you're living a very chaotic life on the streets, you might, you know, it might be that structuring and environment alone that that's quite important by by the prison so obviously you've talked about there being what 2.3 million people currently incarcerated in america what how can that be reduced like what do you think could be done to reduce that number because that's crazy yeah um well that is a golden question right if if i if i knew that i think i would put myself out of business but um i think that (laughs) that, it'd probably be worth it yeah it'd be be worth it um any sort of change is going to have to happen you know uh in kind of micro changes right you're going to have to slowly chip away at the things that are you know going on in the system and i think what you know needs to happen first is a better understanding of what these systems are actually doing right so why are people coming maybe electively coming back to prison or why are people caught up in scenarios in the community where they are arrested or what you know what what's actually going on and what what you know what kind of gap and role are the is the prison filling so i think you know those questions kind of need to be answered first before you say okay well what specifically can we do to fix the problem um and as i kind of alluded, alluded to before is you know there's there's a need for better kind of social welfare systems, I think, is one of the main things. But really is also just understanding, you know, what is it that the prison system offers? What are these kind of benefits um, that, you know, why somebody would, you know, kind of pit these very violent acts to get the things that they need? Um, and what other ways can we deliver them? I just have one more question, okay. which was, how do you think your time working with prisoners and being in prisons maybe has affected you personally like quite, it's quite an honor to be able to be in that space uh, you can imagine somebody just kind of tagging along and asking you loads of questions and kind of 
bothering you all the time. Like, it's made me a bit more cynical about the way we treat problems and, you know, the way we're all kind of complicit in that as well. You look at the different institutions that invest into prisons and you look at, you know, the different roles that, that people play in, in, you know, supporting and kind of, you know, electing officials that produce these tough on crime laws. You look at the, how it's blowing up in the states around kind of racial you know, issues around policing. You know, we're all kind of complicit in that. And we all have to take some sort of ownership in that. Thanks so much, Landon. Thank you. a great guest. Um, and I think that's what we have time for. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. Um, good night. Yeah, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. This programme was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.